It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Isaiah chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be looking at the name of God, Emmanuel, uh, which is translated God with us. And uh, it's interesting, as you look at the name Emmanuel, it shows up three times in the Bible. Uh, Two are in the Old Testament, and then one is quoting the Old Testament in the New Testament. And uh, and there's there's this fun echo that you actually hear as well uh, in one specific passage. So just to kind of lay this all out on the table then, uh, the first time it shows up in Scripture is the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 7. And this is what Isaiah says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then a chapter later, in chapter 8, verse 8, it mentions this again. And Isaiah writes, Then it will sleep into Judah. Uh, This is speaking some judgment stuff of the Lord. And it will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and spread, uh, and the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. And then a a verse later, two verses later, you hear an echo of the Emmanuel language in verse 10 of chapter 8. And it says, devise counsel, but it will be thwarted. Speak a word, but it will not stand. For God is with us, Emmanuel. Uh, So you get this little echo thing going on. And I just want to kind of give a really quick context for Isaiah chapter 7. Because we often just rip out this one verse and see it in light of the messianic prophecy of the fact that, oh, it's speaking of Jesus. And it is. Uh, But when you look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, right? Again, it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And it's interesting when you look at the context, um, Isaiah is talking to the king uh, Ahaz of Judah. And I just want you to listen. Um, this is from a book on God's names, but this is what Larry Richards says, just giving a quick overview of the context so you understand what that prophecy really is all about. He says, this name is associated with perhaps the most famous prophecy in the Bible. The prophet Isaiah, some 700 years before Christ, is sent to King Ahaz of Judah. The king is terrified because of Syria and Pekah of Israel are negotiating a treaty with view to invade Judah. So Isaiah bears good news. The conspiracy will fail. However, when Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask for a sign, that is a miracle authenticating the message as truly being from God, the apostate king refuses. In response, Isaiah declares, all right, well, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah continues, and referring to his own infant son, Sher Jesseb, whom he is carrying, tells Ahaz that before the child is old enough to be weaned, the two kings Ahaz fears will no longer be a threat to Judah, if you read verse 15 and 16. The second prophecy was fulfilled, as both of the hostile nations Ahaz feared were overrun by Assyria. This is what you could call a near-term prophecy. It was fulfilled within a short span of time and thus authenticating the prophet's message as being from God. That fulfilled prophecy not only demonstrated that Isaiah was God's spokesman, but it also guaranteed the long-term prophecy of a virgin birth and more. 
And then he concludes by saying this. The promised child was not simply to be miraculously conceived, but was also given a name that in Hebrew means God with us. In fact, this is so beautiful to me. In fact, the way the name is constructed gives us a slightly different emphasis. In other words, it can also be translated, with us is God. God is not just to be with us in the traditional sense, but is to be with us in a unique sense. The one who is to be born of a virgin is God, come to earth as a true human being. He is to be with us in our humanity, born into the world as an infant, as we are, and yet at the same time, fully God. And in other words, it's speaking of Jesus, it's true. And so I want you to get the, the concept of what he's, he's saying. Isaiah is giving this prophecy, which was fulfilled in his, in his time period, right, to King Ahaz. And yet... Matthew reaches back and says, do you know what that was actually pointing to? Yes, it was fulfilled. But there's a double fulfillment, right? There's the long-term fulfillment of the prophecy, which is found in Christ Jesus. And so as you come into the, into the New Testament then, in Matthew, uh, God is speaking to Joseph and talking about the fact that you are to marry Mary. That was weird. <laughs> you are to marry the, the woman Mary. And yes, she's pregnant, but she's conceived or she, she's giving birth to God himself. And as a, as a way to encourage Joseph and as a way to say, hey, buddy, let me tell you what, what's really going on. This is what God says to Joseph, or this is what uh, Matthew records. Now, all this took place in order that, was, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, and then he quotes Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then Matthew says, which is translated, God with us. Isn't that idea a beautiful concept? God is with us. And I, I know that we sing the song, especially at Christmas time, and I know that we ponder, oh, he is Emmanuel, he's with us. But do you really recognize that God is with us. <clears throat> for, for example, listen to Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Do you, do you know what the psalmist is saying? Our God is with us. Where can you flee from his presence? He's always with us. Or, or, or look at what Haggai 1.13 says. Then Haggai, the messenger of Yahweh, spoke by the commissioned message of Yahweh to the people saying, I am with you, declares Yahweh. Do you realize that God is a God who wants to be relational? That he's not some distant God, that he actually is with us, that, he, that he's involved, that he's smack dab in the middle of the circumstances of life. Uh, if you look at this idea of I am with you, it's really interesting to me, and, and I didn't do a deep study, but I just started looking at several key characters throughout the Old Testament. And you start to recognize that one of the ways that God would encourage, one of the ways that God would exhort, uh, one of the ways that God would confirm an individual is that he would say, I'm with you. And let me just give you a few of these examples of where God speaks to specific individuals. Uh, for example, to Jacob, 
He says in Genesis 28, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not forsake you until I have done what I have promised you. Or to Joseph in Genesis 39, it says that Yahweh was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And then in verse 21, it says, But Yahweh was with Joseph and extended loving kindness or extended hesed to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. To Moses, it says, and, and, and God said, certainly I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God at this mountain. Exodus 3.12. And God looks at Moses and says, I am with you. To Joshua, at the beginning of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, Moses has just departed, and God says to Joshua, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. I'm with you, Joshua. To, to Samuel in 1 Samuel 3.19, it says that Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. To David, it says in 1 Samuel 18.12 that Samuel was afraid of David for Yahweh was with him but had turned away from Saul. Hezekiah, the king, in 2 Kings 18.7 says, uh, it says that Yahweh was with him, Hezekiah, wherever he went, he prospered and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Phinehas, in 1 Chronicles 9.20, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, was ruler over them previously and Yahweh was with him him. Isn't this beautiful, uh, this idea that Yahweh is with these specific individuals? And I want to give you one more. Do you realize that God has specifically told you that he is with you? For example, and there's a bunch of these, but Hebrews 13 verse 5, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Meaning what? I'm with you. Do you realize that God is with us? That the Emmanuel thing, right? When we talk about the word Emmanuel, we are talking about the incarnation. But there's this beautiful idea that God is with us. Now, this is obviously climax and seen most clearly in the incarnation, right? When God became man in Jesus. And, and just to help us, right? The word incarnation means enfleshed or in bodily or physical form. So that's the idea that Yahweh, this, the triune God, he came in the physical flesh. And it's from the Latin word meaning to, to take on being or to take on flesh. So you get this idea that here's the God of the universe, Yahweh himself, and Yahweh takes on flesh, right? He became incarnate. And what you have in the man Jesus is that you have the fullness of, of God. So Jesus, yes, he's 100% man, he's flesh, and yet he is 100% God. Which is phenomenal. And just to prove my point, I got a whole bunch of verses. Because I just, I, I love this meditation. So I'm just going to run through these really quick, but listen to this. John 1, 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. God became man and dwelt among us. Hebrews 1, uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the hand of the majesty on high. Or Colossians 1, verse 15 and 19, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or look at Colossians 2, 9, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Or Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. It says, Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by, be, by being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here is Jesus, who is God, and yet he set aside his advantage as God to become man, though he's still fully God. Everyone confused? Amen. Uh, John 14, 9, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and have you not come to know me, Philip? Listen to this. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus said, hey, when you look at me, guess what you see? You see the fullness of who God is. You see the Father. You see the Son. I am the triune God in, in physical form. Uh, John 10.30, I and the Father are one, says Jesus. Or look at what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16. And by common confession, or as another translation says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was manifested in the flesh. Paul says, hey, without a doubt, this one's confusing. I get this. But the God of the universe who is invisible and you can't see him, is visible and you can see him. And Yahweh, the triune God, took on humanity. He really took on flesh and he dwelt among us. That idea of God dwelling among us is this beautiful idea of tabernacling. Uh, in John, four, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, I, I just read this, but listen to this again. The word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt means to dwell, means to take up residence, to pitch a tent, to encamp or to occupy. And it's this idea of to tabernacle. That when God came in the flesh and dwelt among us, what was he doing? He was tabernacling among us. That he pitched a tent. Which, by the way, and we're not going to get into this, but if you, if you, if you know the feasts of Israel, uh, there's a fall feast called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents. And it's all about this idea of tabernacling. And if, if you want to study that out and ponder it in light of Jesus, it's, it's just profound. But you, but you have this idea that God came and what did he do? He tabernacled among us. So then if you go into the Old Testament and you look at the tabernacle, do you realize it's this 
movable, portable dwelling of God that literally went with the people wherever they went. And in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, God is speaking and he says, let them make a sanctuary or a tabernacle for me. Why? So that I may dwell among them. And you hear God's heart that even from the beginning with his people, he wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to tabernacle with his people. And so you see the tabernacle, and obviously it was expanded into the temple. But I love the tabernacle imagery because the tabernacle is portable. It went wherever the people went. And I actually think that makes far more sense in the New Testament, not just because Jesus came and tabernacled with us, John 1 verse 14, But then listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are a sanctuary of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And I know most translations translate that temple. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? But it's actually, I think, a better way of translating it. Actually, I love how this translation does this. That it uses the same word as Exodus. You are a sanctuary. You are a dwelling place. You are a tabernacle. And the tabernacle language actually makes more sense to me because you are portable. See, the temple was was permanent. And if you want to use the temple language, I'm fine with that too. It's it's the same concept. But the tabernacle thing was that the tabernacle went with the people. And you realize that the dwelling presence of God goes with you as a believer. Do you not know that you are the dwelling place of the living God? He goes with you wherever you go. That that as Christians, we don't have to go down to some building to visit God. That we have become the house, the tabernacle, the sanctuary of the living God. And our God wants to live and dwell within you. Do you know how beautiful that is? That's profound. And the same thing that God was wanting to do in a physical expression in the Old Testament with a physical tabernacle, he now wants to do spiritually inside of you. And you have become the dwelling place of the Lord Most High. In John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room scene. He's talking to his disciples. And listen what he says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him. Listen to this. And make our dwelling, make our abode, make our place, tabernacle with him. And the root word of this word, the dwelling, uh, is the word abide. And so the whole idea is, Jesus says, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to the Father and we're going to come and we're going to abide in you. And then in chapter 15, he says, and you need to abide in me. And the beautiful reality of the Christian life is that there's a twofold reality, that I am in Christ and Christ is in me, that I'm abiding in him like a branch in a vine, and yet strangely, he's indwelling my life. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, John 16, Jesus is uh, wrapping up the upper room scene conversation, and he looks at his disciples, and he says this, and we just looked at this with, with you guys just the other day, but... But Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Are you kidding me? Why is it better for Jesus to leave? Because he says, if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
And he, when, when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose it to, to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take a mine and will disclose it to you. Do you realize that what Jesus is saying is, it is, it is such a good thing that I'm leaving. And of course, I mentioned this already, but if I was one of the disciples, I would have been like, no. It's not better that you leave. Because I would, I would love to have the physical presence of Jesus here. But according to Jesus, it's actually good that he leaves. Why? Because he was going to send forth his spirit. And the indwelling of his life in us, according to Jesus, is far better than actually having the physical presence of Jesus. And I mentioned it to you guys, but in eternity, do you realize we get both? We have the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which is going to be exponentially greater than what we experience here, right? Because Paul says in Ephesians that what we have with the indwelling of Christ is merely a down payment of what is to come. That the, I mean, this thing is going to explode. I mean, this thing is going to get so much better. And by the way, this side of eternity, it can be, it can be good. So, I mean, if, it, if it's this good, this side of eternity, could you imagine how phenomenal the infilling of the Holy Spirit is going to be that side of eternity? And we will have the physical presence of Jesus with us, which is mind-boggling to me. And we will actually physically see God, and we will be able to slap him on the back, and we'll be able to have coffee and, you know, go for a walk. Because I'm sure he doesn't run. So, do you remember Jewish culture? The older you get, the slower you walk. So, I love that idea. <laughs> so there's this beautiful idea that Jesus says, it's actually, it's actually an advantage to you that I leave. Because if I leave, think about this, I will send my spirit, and I won't just dwell with you, I will then dwell within you. Which takes the Emmanuel thing to a whole nother level. But you recognize that if he wasn't incarnate, if he didn't come in the flesh and go to the cross and die for our sins and be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven, you wouldn't be able to receive the Holy Spirit because you would be an improper vessel. So he died and, and, and went to the cross. Why? So that he can cleanse you and forgive you so that he can fill you. And his desire is that he would be with you, not just with you like a buddy who shows up once in a while, but to actually live within you and actually be the source and the strength of your life. Uh, speaking about the future, uh, Jesus says this in, in John 14. I love this. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, oh, there you may be also. And I mentioned this before, but the word mansion actually is, I think, this misleading uh, because you don't get a mansion. And again, I'm sorry if that, if that hurts. You know? As a little kid, I'm like, yes. I'm going to lock the door and I'm not, I'm not going to let any, anybody else in. Why? Because it's mine. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, do you realize that in my dad's house, there are lots of little rooms. There's lots of dwelling places. And I'm going to go, I'm going to get it ready, and I'm going to come back, I'm going to get you, 
and we're going to dwell together. Why? Because his desire has always been to dwell with and within his people. Why? He is Emmanuel, God with us. He wants to dwell with us, folks. Again, not just like a buddy who shows up, he pops in, pops out, but he actually wants to indwell you, not just dwell with you. So all that being said, I want to, I want to give just three, what I'm going to say are amazing realities of our God being Emmanuel. What, what does it mean for God to be with us? So just, just three quick ideas. Number one, it's this idea of position, which goes to this idea of the indwelling life of Christ. Oh, sorry, uh, the twofold reality. I was looking at the other one. So when we're looking at this idea of position, there is a twofold reality of the Christian life. Do you realize that my position is in Christ? His position is in me. And that twofold reality is so amazing to me. And as a Christian, you have to have both sides of that coin. So I am physically here, just as you're physically there, right? Pinch your neighbor, ah, right? So I am physically here, but scripture says that I'm seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter two, verse six, which we're going to look at in just one second. So, so my position then, though I am physically here, I am spiritually in Christ there. And we are told in Ephesians 1 that Jesus is physically at the right hand of the Father, but he has sent forth his spirit to indwell me here. So my position physically is here, but spiritually in him. And his position physically is at the right hand of the Father, but spiritually through his spirit, he's in me. So I am in Christ, Christ is in me, and that twofold reality is the Christian life. Does that make sense? And you need both of those. I'm in Christ. Christ is in me. So look at Colossians 1.27. Paul says, God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. What is the riches of this glorious mystery? He says, it's, oh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a glorious mystery. In Ephesians 2.6 we're, we're, he says that he forgave us and cleansed us by his grace and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So Christ is in me and I am in Christ. And if you look at Galatians 2.20, he kind of hints at both of these aspects. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And he kind of hints at both of those. So when we talk about the fact that God is Emmanuel, that, that Jesus came in the flesh, that he wants to dwell with and within his people, do you realize that is the Christian life? That twofold reality of the position that I am in him and he is in me. Uh, number two is this idea of presence, which is the, the enduring life of Christ. Do you realize because he's Emmanuel, that means I, just ponder this, you and I get the very life of Christ indwelling us. That we actually have the fullness of him living within us. 
Do you know how incredible that is for day-to-day living? That God is not out there somewhere. That's Old Testament, right? In the New Testament, the outside God has come to live on the inside. And now he wants to be my life. He wants to source my life. He wants to enable my life. He wants to be my wisdom and be my joy and be my peace and be my everything. And there's a whole shift that that has taken place in the new covenant where I now live by the indwelling life of Christ within me. That, That I live by him and his resource. That I don't just have an outside God anymore. I have an inside God who has given himself for me, who loves me. Isn't that amazing? That is so profound. Uh, look, look at this kind of life. Jesus says in John 10.10 10, that the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But I have come, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is a very rich life, folks. In Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 3 and 4, Paul says, For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And then he makes this statement. I love this. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you will also be manifested with him in glory. Do you realize that Christ is to be your life? He doesn't just merely give you life. He wants to be your life. I love this passage in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. How are we to live? Through Christ. We are to live by his life, his resource, his enablement, his power, his everything. Uh, Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. In the second prayer that Paul prays, starting in verse 16, Paul says, I pray that he would give you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being firmly rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up. Are Are you hear this? That you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or understand according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I don't know if you heard just the the tone of what Paul's saying. Paul's like, he dwells in you. You're rooted and grounded in him. That the fullness of love is doing something in you. That, that, that somehow you're able to comprehend that which is incomprehensible. That, that, that you could be filled up with the fullness of his life. Why? Because he lives in you. And you have the indwelling life of Christ within through his spirit if you are a believer. That changes everything. So you have this idea of position, right? That, that I'm in Christ and Christ is in me. Uh, There's this idea then of the indwelling life of Christ, the presence idea. And number three is this idea of the provision. That that if he is Emmanuel, do you realize that he is the supply for everything that I need for life? That he actually is going to enable and give me everything that I need. Uh, In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus speaking to the disciples says, says this, 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Do you realize that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, which is the infilling of the Holy Spirit, do you realize that he was giving them everything that they needed? Do you need boldness? He gives boldness. Do you need power and resource? He's the enabling grace and the strength to do it. As you move into like Hebrews, and I read this a few moments ago, but Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, listen. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we will confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Do you realize that he promises a supply of his presence? And as such, what do you need? What do you have to fear? He gives you that which is needed in the moment. David in Psalm 23 is talking about the fact that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. You are Emmanuel. And you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. Do you realize that everything you need to, to live this life, God has supplied? Why? He's not just with you. He's within you. Which is why 2 Peter chapter 1, and I feel like I quote this in every single Daily Thunder, probably because I do. <laughs> but this, this passage to me is so profound, and it is so essential for the life of a Christian. Listen to this. 2 Peter verse, or chapter 1, verse 3 through 4. Peter says, seeing that Jesus' divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has given to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Do you realize that everything you need for life and godliness is found in one place? Jesus. That he is sharing his divine nature with you. Now, you don't become God, but you get to share in his life. That he has given you magnificent and precious promises. And do you realize that every single thing that you need for life, every, every single thing that you need for godliness, Everything that you need to live out the reality of Christianity, everything for you to live triumphant over sin, everything that you need to live with joy and peace and, and hope and triumphant, everything you need, you have. Because you have him. So you have our God who is Emmanuel, the triune God who took on flesh, not just so he can dwell with us, but because his longing, yes, is to dwell with his people, but his longing is to dwell within his people and reestablish that which you were created for, which is to be the tabernacle of the living God. Do you realize that the living God of the universe is to dwell within you? And he wants to be the supply for everything that you need. And do you realize that if you have the God of the universe on your side, why are we fearful? Why, why, why are we so prone to sin? Why, why do we keep going after the things of this world? If we actually realized that God wasn't out there somewhere, but he actually lived in here through the indwelling of his spirit, 
Wouldn't that change how we handle temptation? Wouldn't that change how we handle the culture? Wouldn't that change how we handle evangelism? Because the one who is the fullness of the gospel, the one who is giving us boldness, is in us. That if I'm facing temptation, there's no temptation that can overtake me. Why? Because it can't overtake him. And he lives inside of me. I don't know how to more strongly emphasize the importance of the indwelling life of Christ. You cannot live how you are supposed to live outside of him. As Ian Thomas beautifully said, you can't. But he never said you could. He will, and he always said he would. How? Through his indwelling life through his spirit that now lives within us. So do you realize that Yahweh, the God of the universe, through the incarnation took on flesh? His name is Emmanuel, God with us. And Emmanuel lived a perfect sinless life, went to a cross and died, rose again and ascended on high. Why? So he can send forth his spirit to not just dwell with us, but now to indwell in us. That is an incredible reality. Let's pray. Lord, I am just dumbfounded by the reality that you don't want to just be with me. You want a tabernacle within me. And just as the physical tabernacle of the Old Testament was this portable sanctuary that was a place of worship and sacrifice and holiness, Lord, that's what you want to do in my life. That I am to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto you. That Lord, I am to be a sanctuary of the very presence of God through your Spirit. And Lord, it is mind-numbing to me just the fact that you were willing to take on flesh and dwell among us so that you can rescue, redeem your people from sin and darkness and death and depravity. And perhaps what is even more mind-boggling is that wasn't the end of the gospel. That yeah, you came to forgive us, and yes, you came to die, and that's so phenomenal, and we don't want to downplay that. But the reason you wanted to forgive us, and, and the reason you wanted to redeem us, is not merely for us to get into heaven, but for the reality of heaven to get inside of us. And so you sent forth your spirit, that promise of the Father, to indwell our lives, that Pentecost event, so that now we become the tabernacles of the living God. Lord, would you give us a holy fear That just as you went into the temple and cleansed the temple because it was full of selfishness and selling and it wasn't, it wasn't the place that you had created it to be. Lord, could you do that in our lives? Could you through your spirit come and point out anything that's happening in this tabernacle, this dwelling place that shouldn't be going on? Because this is to be a, a holy, consecrated place given unto worship. Get given unto this living sacrifice unto you. 
So Lord, this is not a place where sin is supposed to dwell. This is not a place where pride is supposed to prevail. This is not a place where selfishness or self-pity or self-focus is supposed to have a, have a position. Rather, you and the fullness of your life is to inhabit and dwell and be the focus of my life. That, that when the world sees my life, they don't, they don't see me, they see you through me. And so, Lord, could you cleanse, could you purge, could you change, could you transform, could you conform me to the image of Christ so that I become a holy sanctuary for the living God? And Lord, I admit I cannot do that outside of you. I cannot grip my teeth. I can't produce this enough. Lord, I need you and your cleansing work to make me a sanctified, set-apart, consecrated, holy vessel for your use. And Lord, could you just so overwhelm me and my reality of just, I, I have the privilege in this generation, in these days, to be a portable dwelling place for the living God. Lord, may my life express the reality of Christ, which means I've got to get tight with you. Lord, thank you that you dwell with us. Thank you that you are Emmanuel. And perhaps more so, Jesus, we thank you that you sent forth your Spirit so that you don't just dwell with us, you dwell within us. We love you, we praise you, we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.